Okay, well, we'd like to thank um, Eckhard Ellers and Bjorn Gottstein and uh, the whole team of Audio Poverty for, uh, for inviting us to present uh, this paper. Um, it's great to see so many people here. Um, so we're going to start our paper around, um, let's say, around the, uh, the new geography of money in relation to the question of uh, impoverishment and pauperization in relation to uh, music, sound, and audio. Okay. Are you ready? Then we'll begin. The long-tail theory was never just a theory with all the academic distance that this implies. The long tail was never a model with all the levels of intermediation that this implies. The long tail is best understood as a virus, a virus that has long since leaked from its quarantined domain of industry expertise and professional competence. From the moment the long tail was announced by Chris Anderson, editor-in-chief of Wired magazine in October 2004, it began to spread, inviting people to imagine their future, or more specifically to see their future as already at hand. The long tail theory does not just refer to objective economic changes grouped under terms such as the new economy and the market. It refers to the more experiential transformations of how much people think about economics in mundane, everyday existence. The long tail is only one mode. It is neither the first nor the last of a mode of power that we call financialization, a mode that actualizes itself transversely across the surface of the social. And what emerges from this actualization is an interest in how economic knowledge is practiced by an, by an entire population of non-economists who are forced to live out the financialization of their lives. How do those without significant capital, cultural producers such as musicians, artists, academics, journalists, how do they, that is we, understand market processes or function as though we did. Financialization is the process by which all subjects, regardless of status, are actively trained in vigilant opportuni opportunism to operate as economic analysts, as pirates, as small-time investors through personal finance guidebooks, magazine articles, university extension courses, online games, television programs, newspaper, advice columns, systems for setting up businesses, the provisions for technical systems for implementation of microfinance, user-driven innovation, social network mechanisms, crowdcasting, peer-to-peer -peer trading, and viral marketing. Deploying pool strategies to engage an audience to harness that network for new insights. Crowdcasting operates virally as producers are no longer treated as passive consumers. 
whose needs can be anticipated and shaped by centralized planners. But rather, pool models extract from network creators innovations and improvisations, dragging the future into the present to harness and capitalize on the production of the new. The long-tail virus is an audio futurology which coexists in, in an ecology of computing futurologies and futurisms, an ecology marked by the double pincer of corporate optimism and vanguard pessimism. And what is at stake is the operating system of audio social reality. In between this field delimited by constantly upgraded corporate promises and critical lament lay an array of viral sonic war machines concerned with the re-engineering of desire outside of futurology's attempts to predict and control the uncharted, the not yet actualized. In the face of generalized impoverishment and pauperization of audio culture, our concern is with peripheral compromised futurisms and how they offer an imminence that sidesteps the dialectic of optimism and pessimism. The question is to what extent do these futurisms offer partly inadvertent, partly intentional immunity to these waves of viral capital and financialization. Long-tail long analytics are underpinned by the dynamic insights of the sciences of chaos and complex complexity. They are underpinned by notions of swarm intelligence, which explain the emergent properties of unpredictable systems <clears throat> and the collective behaviors which coalesce at critical population thresholds. The techno-economic concept, the techno-economic context of the long tail maps onto the recessionary phase of the current long wave cycle. As such, it represents a mutation of viral capital, a mutation that is readjusting and readapting itself to the volatile environment that has transformed the world of music in the last 15 years. The long tail is based on the notion that the internet and digital distribution has limited the constraints of shelf space, making possible unlimited inventory for online retailers and servicing facilita services facilitating potentially infinite consumer choice and the so-called optimal matching of supply and demand. The predictive model of the long tail according to a Bear Stearns equity research report of 2006, which sought to advise investors on where to put their money, demands that, and I quote, consumers will move to the tail of the demand curve, creating new niche markets, and move away from historical hits and the head of the demand curve. Moreover, while each niche will be small, Chris Anderson argues that these niches will further fractionalize shares for incumbents. And cumulatively, the market for niches may exceed the size of traditional business. This is the promise. And I quote again from the Bear Stearns report, the ability to provide near infinite choice for consumers 
reveals that virtually all niche products, no matter how obscure or esoteric, find some level of demand or audience. The long tail is therefore marked by what business people call drivers. The dramatic increase in the supply of content sets up the drift of value to the middle of the supply chain, which increases the value of middlemen, strong bands, editorial discretion, and user recommendations, all of which are capable of operating as noise filters or sorting devices. The reassurance is that user-generated content or niche markets will compete with the mainstream. Chris Anderson asks the existential question, what do we really want? Unlike Sartre, who provides an answer, we're only just discovering, but it clearly starts with more. Longtail theory promises a future in which the condition of music is one of post-scarcity, a barely imaginable prospect that is already present, an era in which audio culture breaks free of the constraints of geography and history to operate as an infinite playlist announced by a celestial jukebox. The long-tail theory has recently been attacked by the economist Will Page and his colleague Andrew Budd. This duo questioned the statistical foundation of Anderson's projection of the long tail. In November 2008, they claimed that the niche, the idea of the niche, is not an untapped gold mine. Statistically speaking, online sales success still rely on big hits. Of the 1.23 million albums available in the year 07 to 08, only 173,000 were ever bought. The result, 85% of all albums did not sell a single copy all year. I think people believed in the fat, fertile long tail because they wanted it to be true, declared Andrew Budd. Quoting again, the statistical theories used to justify that theory were intelligent and plausible, but they turned out to be wrong. The data tell quite a different story. For the first time, we know that the true demand, we know what the true demand for digital looks like. Page and Bud's critique had been greeted with delight and relief by many dissatisfied at the discrepancy between the promise and the arrival of the long tail. As Eckhard Ellers and Bjorn Gottstein write in their statement, A Brief Aesthetics of Post-Economic Music, the theory of the long tail, that the long and little sellers of the archive would replace the hit in terms of capital production has thus been refuted. Armed with data that corrects Anderson's statistical fiction, it now becomes possible for the first time to consign his data to the trash icon of history and to assert the truth of desire in the digital age. The confident tone of this claim only underlines the naivety of its assertion. The long tail is neither a theory nor a model, but a virus that cannot be immunized by the force of critique. Quite the reverse, 
A critique confirms the existence of what it attacks and thereby acts as its host. A critique shares enough assumptions with what it opposes to act as its incubator. In this case, Page and Bud's critique of Anderson's long tail is merely another economic model that attempts to compete with the all too successful employment offered by the long tail. In fact, Page and Bud's critique has initiated a game of digital ping pong. On the Wired blog of January 15th, the Wired journalist Elliot Van Buskirk blogged a recent report by eMusic that disproved the statistical findings of Page and Bud and confirmed the long tail. Buskirk concluded, if the major labels keep contracting to the point where they crumble into a back catalogue company, the mainstream music scene could come to resemble e-music much more closely, and the long tail could come to dwarf the so-called head. In other words, when it comes to music, maybe the long tail theory was just a little early. Or to put it another way, the long tail virus retreats into another future from which it will return again now. The long tail virus is an audio futurology. It exists in an ecology, an ecology of competing futurologies, an ecology of competing futurisms, an ecology marked by the double pincer movement of corporate optimism and vanguard pessimism. And what is at stake is the operating system of the audio social reality of contemporary capitalism a reality which has seen the colonization of the audiosphere by an epidemic of earworms or audioviruses. The concept of the virus as applied to cybernetic culture, from computer infections to the dynamics of hype, has become generally prevalent and yet is particularly underthought and under-theorized in relation to sound. To understand this ubiquity of the virus and its relevance to the contagiousness of vibrational events, and to understand their transduction and transmission across discourse networks, some initial components of an audio virology can be, can be sketched. Initial components that will pay special attention to the practices of microscopic engineering, incubation, transmission, contagion, and the mutation of sonic cultures. Methodologically, an audio virology implies the transcription of the terminology of music markets and anti-markets. Individual, ar individual artists or producers, for example, become carriers. Journalists, bloggers, become discursive vehicles. Evidence, if, sorry, events become incidents of outbreak. Scenes become fields of contagion. Trade and exchange in contagious sonic fluids or particles. Radio, a literal transmission network. And acoustic cyberspace in both its analog and digital domains becomes an epidemiological field of affective contagion. 
Instead of incorporation, therefore, instead of a notion of incorporation which is modeled on a hierarchical binary of underground versus mainstream, of illegal versus legal, an audiovirology is more concerned with transversal propagation vectors across an array of standard and non-standard sonic ecologies. It is more concerned with new trading and transmission channels opened up by accident. And it's helpful to track down traces of this notion of sonic infection. A sonic infection that resides latent within the discourses of corporate finance, within discourse networks, and within audio cultures, while also noting how the digitization of culture has brought viral microcultures into ever sharper focus. And this complex symbiosis plays out in digital music markets and in their pirate peripheries. Is there really a necessary contradiction, for example, between unrestrained file trading and the subsequent re-territorialization of this into pay for downloads? Or is it merely a change of speed of propagation? Trading activity is channeled through a labyrinth of credit card transactions, slowing transmission, but simultaneously untapping a potential for escalation by feeding cash back into production labs and bolstering the zone of parasitic mediation, which sustains corporate bodies in capitalizing on and monopolizing mass listening. Peer-to-peer -peer file trading damages corporate margins, allows music to flow more freely, increasing the potential audience for the music while simultaneously depriving some artists of income. Older critical models struggle to keep up with these complexities. Once pirate and mainstream cultures enter this tighter symbiotic relationship of effective contagion, the distinction between pirate or do-it-yourself microcultures and a co-opting capitalism becomes flattened out. And now a new problem emerges, a problem in relation to the possibility of identifying invention when it actually occurs. This problem of differentiating innovation from its capture is confounded by what the writer Matt Mason has termed in his book of the same name, The Pirate's Dilemma. Mason, whose book often reads like an introduction to the youth culture of the last 30 years, youth culture made safe for corporate capitalists, is keen to sing the praises of the constructive power of cultural piracy. <coughs> constructive power of cultural piracy to transform capitalism to the point where we are all now happy pirates, or so he claims. And yet, in his rush to celebrate decentralized networks, his argument often seems to whitewash over the fact that power no longer needs to operate in a top-down fashion. Mason catalogues a long list of pirate invasions of media platforms with innovative ideas and formats delivered in stealthy fashion, adopting various tactics of camouflage and anonymity from the tidal waves of Schumpeterian creative destruction triggered by innovation in technology or technique to the perpetual subversion, hacking, 
and remixing that the non-standard use of these technologies facilitate, the law can only but lag behind. For Mason, this has signaled the end of top-down mass culture. Youth culture, he claims, has reinvented or rejuvenated capitalism to the point that piracy has now become just another business model. A mutation from subversive cultural weapon to the business plan. The situationist projection of art into the everyday becomes merely advertising and branding. So his instruction to capitalists is that to succeed, they should really compete with piracy instead of fighting it. So I quote from Matt Mason's book, The Pirate's Dilemma. Pirates highlight areas where choice does not exist and demand that it does. And this mentality transcends media formats, technological changes, and business models. Successful pirates adapt quickly to social and technological changes, but this is true of all entrepreneurs. Once these new ideas are broadcast, they unavoidably create a pirate's dilemma for others in the market. Should they fight the pirates or accept that there is some value in what they are doing and compete with them? In such a scenario, global and local pirate economics no longer merely function as a parasitic rejection of the global order. Rather, these hybrid mixtures of formal and informal economy indicate a voracious, turbulent globalization in which waves of innovation sweep in from the periphery that surrounds and transects the core in ever-decreasing time loops between innovation and mass marketing. As these time loops, loops approach zero, shortened by the voraciousness of viral marketing, futurology, and co-hunting, then this underlines the somewhat bleak side of the story that Matt Mason fails to acknowledge and tends to neglect. The challenge is whether pirate cultures can retain autonomy as major corporations switch from aggressive conflict to aggressive competition. Can they develop their own preemptive mechanisms to ward off capture? How exactly tactical media, localized do-it-yourself pragmatism, engaged in jamming, hacking, and short-circuiting communication and power grids at the periphery will continue to coalesce with sound system cultures and an aesthetic of mongrelized music is of course an unpredictable question and subject to local conditions. But perhaps it is this random element that is the most powerful weapon against attempts to preempt and harness their effective power, the effective power of these localized pirate cultures. So what sonic cultures are incubated within the emergent urbanism of the planet of slums? And what tactics of frequency do they deploy? What tactics of frequency do they deploy? 
what affective mutations of the urban environment are activated, where slum, ghetto, shantytown, favela, project and housing estate rub up against hypercapital. In both European and Afro-diasporic musical traditions of the 20th century, the politics of music has often been reduced to what is said, to its content, to its meaning, to its signification. The narrative superimposed on top of its form or the extent to which it was supposed to represent an exterior political reality. In the planet of slums, the topology of unequal development noted by world systems theory is extended. Core and periphery are tightly enfolded. Islands of the hypercapitalist core rise up, fortressed within developing regions of the world, while basins of periphery encircle the core of the developed world. In Mike Davis's book, um, he argues that rather than the high-tech city of cybernetic control, we should be looking elsewhere to gauge the future shape of cities. As opposed to the fine-tuned preemptive modulation of hyper-control in the core, there coexists a peripheral urbanism of an unprecedented scale and density, often characterized by predatory locales in which fear is ingrained into everyday life. Due to underdevelopment, a deregulated economy of violence, drug wars, gang factionalism, and abject poverty. Davis's depictions are particularly bleak, not just because of their realism, but also because they ignore some of the cultural pragmatics that make existence in these predatory locales bearable. So for us, it becomes useful to force Mike Davis's dystopic urbanism into confrontation, into a confrontation with the modus operandi of pirate media and sound system cultures in the neighborhoods of underdeveloped cities. In otherwise hopeless situations, collective excitement is produced and local youth cultures activated in kick-starting microeconomies. How do these sonic war machines, via pirate economics and effective mobilization, transduce, even temporarily, the affects of pervasive fear? How do they transduce, even temporarily, dread? How do they exercise dread, even temporarily, into momentary joy through the ritualization of aggression via collective dance? In the planet of slums, Mike Davis outlines how the demographics of urbanization of 21st century earth are in terminal transition. The digital flash floods of viral economics are paralleled by the massive exchanges of migrant populations, highlighting the frayed edges of McLuhan's global nervous system as it undergoes cellular decomposition molecular mutation, and trade in sonic fluids. The key agents in the emergent global configuration are the new megacities and populations in excess of 8 million. And even more spectacularly, 
as Davis Wright, hyper cities of more than 20 million inhabitants. As a result of massive unilateral rural to urban migration. For the first time in evolutionary history, the evolutionary history of the human species, Davis notes cities will account for all future world population growth, which is expected to peak at about 10 billion in 2050. As Davis's rival De Soto notes in the book Mysteries of Capital, radio has functioned as a magnet in this process, advertising the opportunities of urban living across the rural world. Radio, McLuhan's tribal drum, acts as a mobilizing call to urban replication. The planet of slums for Davis is composed of interchangeable and spontaneously unique components. For Mike Davis, the planet of slums is composed of interchangeable and spontaneously unique components, including the bustees of Kolkata, the chawls and zopadpatis of Mumbai, the Kachi Abadis of Karachi, the Kambungs of Jakarta, the Iskwatas of Manila, the Shamasas of Khartoum, the Umjondolas of Darban, Durban, the Intramurios of Rabat, the Bidonville of Abidjan, the Baladis of Cairo, the Jessicondus of Ankara, the Conventilos of Quito, the Favelas of Brazil, the Villas Miseria of Buenos Aires, and the Colonias Populares of Mexico City. The Sonican architecture of these emergent urban entities has usefully been tagged by music blogger Wobot Matt Ingram as shanty house theory, referring to the coincident musical network that has arisen out of these planetary locales, from the grime pirate radio stations of East London, Crunk from the southern US, Dancehall from Jamaica, Bifunk from the Brazilian favelas, Cueto from South Africa, Reggaeton from Puerto Rico, etc. And for Matt Ingram, and I quote, Shanty House is the new strain of post-world music, a post-world music that engages in the same cultural and social dynamics that have given us crunk and grime in the first world and dancehall in Jamaica. Detractors might bemoan the need to give favela funk or Cueto or Desi a brand name. However, like it or lump it, these forms are always going to exist on the peripheries of most people in the West experience of music. If they aren't called something specific, then they'll be less absorbable in their own right, and conversely will be viewed as an extension of world music. The concept of world music is inextricably entwined with concepts of the natural, the earthen, and the rooted. However, the new wave of global urban music is mercilessly hooligan in its agenda, synthetic by choice, and necessity, and it is often produced in a crucible of urban existence that is more extreme, more precarious, and more violent than that which characterizes the temperature of New York, London, or Berlin. In a somewhat condemning article in the Village Voice on the artist MIA, um, an artist whose work masquerades as a conference call 
between these degenerate locales of the planet of slums. The writer Simon Reynolds elucidated the condition of shanty house theory as world is a ghetto musics, impurest genres that typically suture bastardized vestiges of indigenous folk forms to pirated elements of rap, rave, and bass and booty, locally rooted but plugged into the global media sphere. These scenes don't bother over much with sample clearances, and vibe-wise, they typically project roughneck raucousness, leaving with party-up calls to shake that ass. They also speak vividly, if obliquely, of a new world order, a new world disorder, where Tupac Shakur vies with Bin Laden as a t-shirt icon, and terrorists keep in touch via text messaging. Similarly, a more literal description was offered by the blogger and ethnomusicologist, DJ Wayne Marshall, who labeled the web woven by those such as DJ Rupture and himself, among others, who connect these disparate music cultures as global ghetto tech, stating that for him, and I quote, global ghetto tech describes the recent interest in such genres as funk karaoke, Kuduro, reggaeton, juke, grime, koeto, and so on, as genres identified with the ghettos of the former colonies, as well as the ghettos of today's post-colonial metropolises. In many ways, what Simon Reynolds has tagged the hardcore continuum might be understood as a localized prototype for global ghetto tech. It might be understood as an Afro-diasporic proletarian, mongolized, impurist music culture that bootstraps itself, that bootstraps itself using do-it-yourself methodologies and that unselfconsciously rides the fine line of what he terms a popular avant-garde, an avant-lumpen mass form which balances restless sonic mutation with cheese. As Reynolds traced in a series of key articles in the Wire magazine during the 1990s, I quote, I call it a continuum. I call, it a, I call the hardcore continuum a continuum because that's what it is. A musical tradition, subcultural tribe that's managed to hold it together for nearly 20 years, negotiating drastic stylistic shifts and significant changes in technology drugs, and the social-racial composition of its own population. It's been a bumpy but exhilarating ride. The hardcore continuum includes um, a continuum that stretches from hardcore through jungle, drum and bass, speed garage, two-step, up to grime, baseline house, and so on. Particularly focused snapshot slice of, of UK music culture. It's been a bumpy but exhilarating ride, Reynolds continues. But let no one doubt that it's the same roller coaster at every stage of the journey, a ride which is most likely has yet to reach its end. I call it hardcore because the tradition started to take shape circa 1990 with what people called hardcore techno or hardcore rave, or, sim or sometimes simply hardcore.
these early sounds, bleep tunes from the northeast, breakbeat house, and raga techno from London were the first time that the UK came up with its own unique mutant versions of house and techno. Ironically, by adding elements from dub reggae, dancehall, and hip hop that weren't British in origin, but equally would never have been let back, let into the mix back in Chicago and Detroit. And from jungle and two-step to today's grime and bassline, the basic parameters of the music have stayed the same as they were in the early hardcore. Although, Reynolds argues, the relative balance of various sources of reggae and rap, R&B and Eurotechno has shifted and the beats per minute has fluctuated wildly. The core elements of the hardcore continuum are these. Beat science that seeks the intersection between fucked up and groovy. Dark bass pressure. MCs chatting fast over live mixed DJ sets. Samples and arrangement ideas inspired by pulp soundtracks and orchestrated pop. In a profound sense, underneath two decades of rent relentless sonic mutation, this is the same music, the same culture. And what has also endured has been the scene's economic infrastructure, the infrastructure of pirate radio stations, the clandestine cartography of pirate radio stations, independent record stores, often in out-of-the-way suburban and peripheral areas, white labels and dub plates, specific rave promoters and clubs, again, often cited in the less glitzy, non-central areas of cities. DJ Rupture, among others, have questioned the value of the hardcore continuum concept. He noted on his blog, for example, that the notion was one among many that provides a general overview and therefore a necessarily partial map of UK electronica club migration patterns. As Rupture writes, but more often than not, but more often than not, it gets used as a conservative canon in, dra in drag. But more often than not, the hardcore continuum gets used as a conservative canon in drag. In these cases, it is a rather blatant attempt by critics to secure their formerly relevant areas of specialization as the proper ones, usually by employing offensively reductionist binaries, rigid historicization and classification, and an alarmist overvaluing of drugs role in musical subcultures. And these are moves which allow them to import the same old interpretive frameworks, suppressing the wonder of unwieldy new variables in order to deliver the same old answers. What is interesting for us, however, is the way journalists, bloggers, and writers, even in their most ferociously critical and antagonistic modes, function as carriers through discourse networks of various strains of audiovirus, whether it be Simon Reynolds in relation to the hardcore continuum, or for example, Wayne Marshall and DJ Rupture in relation to global ghetto tech. In this sense, whether offline or online, both Reynolds 
in relation to the hardcore continuum and rupture with bloggers like Wayne Marshall function as discursive distillers and vehicles for the transmission of aggressively mongrelized music cultures. Both the hardcore continuum and global ghetto tech operate as impoverished and precarious audio-social ecologies, which attempt to sidestep the opposition, to find a diagonal between the opposition, between the promissory optimism of corporate audio futurology and the vanguardist pessimism of the avant-garde. So we're approaching the uh, conclusion of our paper, um, a paper which has attempted to map the question of long-tail theory in terms of its viral epidemiology, a paper that has attempted to map the long-tail in terms of its insider economics, a paper that has attempted to understand virology in its broadest sense, a paper that has attempted to understand the questions and the practices of global ghetto tech and the hardcore continuum as peripheral, compromised futurisms that attempt to elude what we call the corporate futurology of the long-tail theory. We offer some provisional conclusions. In the face of a generalized impoverishment and pauperization of audio culture, our concern is with peripheral compromised futurisms and how they offer an imminence that offers a diagonal, a diagonal that cuts across this dialectic of optimism and pessimism. For Ehlers and Gottstein, impoverishment allows for the emergence of a geography of money in which a, quote, post-economic music can be grasped, in, in which um, can be located, quoting again, those places where the economic value of music is practically nothing. For consumer buying power, however it might be measured, simply does not exist. With a relationship of envy and admiration towards these places of post-economic music, these mega slums are seen to operate through strategies of informal survivalism. And these mega, mega slums are nominated, nominated as incubators, incubators for a new kind of musical practice that somehow exists outside of the market economy. The question for us, however, is to what extent do, they, do these futurisms, these compromised futurisms, these impoverished futurisms offer partly inadvertent, partly intentional resilience in the midst of waves of viral capital and financialization. Thank you. Thanks. I think we have time for some questions. Maybe while everybody is um, just uh, processing some of the things we said, 
will map out some of the, some of the broader questions of what um, we wanted to sketch out in our paper. I think the invitation to think through um, the question of the long tail was, um, was intriguing for us because the long tail tends to be taken at face value. It tends to be understood in the same terms as which, in which it's proposed. But in, in terms of this broader notion of financialization, the uh, long tail we understand in terms of training, training us to understand ourselves in terms of economic agents. And so we wanted to situate the long tail in terms of this, this broader question of what a kind of a economic theory means to non-economists. None of us are economists. None of us are investors. None of us are bankers. And yet all of us feel obliged to financialize ourselves and to think of our lives in terms of uh, what we could broadly call financialization or marketization. And we were very keen to see what happens if you take the long tail theory beyond, beyond the zones in which it is presumed to operate. Uh, our argument is that the long tail theory long ago left uh, the precise domain of what we call the internet economy or the digital economy or the new economy. It left that long ago and, uh, and has seeped across the surface of the social. And uh, part of what we wanted to do was then to understand the long tail as, as part of um, a series of waves of financialization. Um, only 10 years ago, uh, Wired launched uh, its notion of the long boom. And then it launches the notion of the long tail. And clearly, in another few years, Wired will launch another projection, another corporate futurology, another mode of capture, another way and another apparatus which attempts to predict and engineer control. Um, and we want to see the long tail theory as the latest, the latest shining example of these kinds of apparatus of capture. Uh, these kinds of apparatus of captures of futurity and kind of to situate it in that broader, that much broader sense. So that was what was at stake in the kind of, uh, in the kind of initial setting up of our paper, that sense of the long tail theory, not as something narrowly digital, not as something that is only, only of interest to musicians and music people, only of interest to people who download all the time, but as an example of something that, uh, that we have all undergone, uh, the obligation to financialize ourselves and to think of ourselves as financial subjects. The other thing that struck us as we were writing this paper and thinking about the long tail as a kind of note for optimism in what, what was previously had become quite a dark situation due to the the trauma that the um, MP3 was having, MP3 downloading piracy was having on the music industry, was a sense in which the long tail, as this kind of optimistic promissory note of a way in which the music industry, record labels, musicians, would be able to make money. It was like it was shining a torch, shining some light into this dark abyss that had been created by the traum traumatic impact of MP3 on the music industry. Um, so this, this is something that became more and more apparent to us that merely to circulate in 
as many people are doing online just now, to circulate in this kind of dialectical debate about whether the long-tail statistics are right or not, whether it's right as a model or not, seemed um, to really just be the tip of the iceberg for what the long-tail actually stood for. And there's a sense that um, people who attempt to correct the long-tail in terms of uh, its statistical interpretation, people who attempt to disprove the data, you know, the, 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 the maths doesn't add up. The maths is all wrong, therefore the conclusions are wrong. They really play into the hands of the long-tail theory in the sense that for us, it's not enough to disprove it. This disproving, on the contrary, only adds to and gives a certain power. Uh, it only plays into the hands of a kind of uh, crude ping-pong. In other words, any disprove, any disprove can itself be disproved, and so on. Um, instead, it seems much more interesting not merely to launch um, a naive critique which plays into the hands of uh, any kind of attempt at prognosis, but rather to try to map the long tail in terms of the much broader cycles, to try to map it as a mode of futurology, as a mode of capture of futurity. And for us, and a way of thinking around futurology is, is of a kind of uh, a continuous uh, ecology a com what we call a kind of ecology of competing futurologies and competing futurisms. Uh, for us, there is a constant uh, politics of futurity at stake in these kind of projections. And for us, music is one of the most powerful apparatuses for the capturing of futurity. And, uh, and for us, we really wanted to recast the whole question of the long tail into this broader question uh, of futurity, futurisms, and futurology. And in terms of an ecological question, which really displaces um, the kind of binary models of pessimism or optimism, the kind of uh, vanguardist pessimism and the kind of corporate optimism, and displaces that in terms of uh, a question of ecology and a question of virology. And so I think just to clarify an aspect of that, what part of what is going on in this idea of an ecology of competing futurologies and futurisms, um, what we mean by a futurology here is an attempt to kind of predict the future, control the future in order to harness it and capitalize on it. So we, we were understanding the long tail virus as a model of audio futurology. On the other hand, with a different relationship to the future, um, one which is involved in, uh, with, a, with a kind of voracious appetite in the creation of the new, of innovation, kind of audio futurisms. So we're kind of opposing futurologies to futurisms. And the example of the futurisms that we were particularly interested in, in this context, I suppose because of the theme of the event, audio poverty, was, um, and they're not always talked about in terms of futurism, but the futurism of global ghetto tech and the futurism of the hardcore continuum, particularly because these two models of sonic innovation, if, if they could be understood as models, 
interestingly, both um, operate on a kind of viral paradigm, which um, really can, they cannot be properly understood using older critical, critical musicological models, critical um, music cultural theory models, and so on. So the viral paradigm seems quite appropriate to not just the way these music cultures have been generated, but also the way in which their proponents, whether they be journalists, bloggers, and so on, um, function as hosts, probes, distillers, um, transmission vectors for these audio futurisms. So we have a, a kind of um, a different kind of formulation from uh, a kind of conceptualization of the present that Eckhard and that Bjorn have proposed. For us, the question of a, a post-economic music um, is not immediately is not immediately clear to us, and um, we have many questions about this notion of a post-economic music. Uh, the idea that there are places in which the economic value of music is practically nothing for consumer buying power, however it might be measured, simply does not exist. We have many questions about the notion of post-economic music, the notion of musica povera, which we look forward to uh, thinking through, uh, sharing with you over the next couple of days. Um, but for our perspective, uh, the question of post-economic music is answered more productively or, or is kind of invites, invites a set of thinking and a, a, kind, of, uh, a kind of attentiveness um, through the kinds of concepts that we use. So it's a, kind of, it's a fascinating um, confrontation with um, quite different kind of discursive um, uh, tools, a very different way of understanding our present. Um, and we have a sense that we have a sense that um, the present demands uh, the formulation of new conceptual uh, practices and that, uh, that, that the promise and the opportunity of this event is for us to be able to uh, uh, begin to think aloud around what those languages might be and the kinds of questions it permits us to ask. And uh, for us this is crucial and uh, we hope to answer this. We hope to, to, to kind of pose these questions in more detail, um, which is a cue for, uh, a cue for people from the floor. So uh, over to you. I think we've spoken quite a lot, and uh, we'd very much like to hear from anybody in the audience who has any questions, uh, concerns, doubts, desires, If you don't have questions, promises. we'll continue to play ping pong. Oh, thank you. Um, maybe I understood you wrong. I just got you stating that kind of ghetto tech has a potential in sidestepping the market in a viral way. So what, what came to my mind is uh, maybe that's happening here, but I think where it's produced, um, that would sound romantic to me because I think even a, you know, a quieter DJ or a ballet funk DJ He's in some uh, micro market where the party 
is organized and is paid for that. So uh, I don't think it's, yeah. it's too romantic. Yeah, he gets some money for it. I, d I, d I certainly don't think um, we were suggesting that Ghetto Tech is avoiding the market. I think, if anything, what is interesting about these kind of um, the way they engage pirate tactics in their, the way they organize their local sound system cultures, the way they aesthetically, the way they sample, the kind of piracy on many levels is interesting because of the viral way in which it uses the market, not necessarily that it stands outside the market. I think for some people, there is a romantic notion of these kind of distributed, localized um, sound system cultures within the planet of slums that perhaps offers for them some kind of um, uh, notion because of extreme impoverishment that this is potentially a, a model of uh, music culture which stands outside the market. But I don't think that's what we were um, arguing for. More a certain viral approach to DI that certain DIY cultures have, certain sound system cultures have to use the market to get themselves distributed. I'd like to add something. Um, I mean, you talk about Bailefunk. I mean, economically, what's going on there? I mean, I don't know much about it, but it's just a mess. I mean, a couple guys are just controlling everything, sure. making all the money. No matter, they don't care if it's sampled, the music they're using. I mean, as long as it sells sure. and they're making the money, that's it. So I think the, the viral part comes into spreading this type of music into the world. And again, there I think economically that is not really interesting for the artist. Maybe, you know, obviously as a life, as a way to promote the artist himself, but the people are not really making money. I mean, even Bailefunk is not really selling anywhere. Take Kwaito, yeah, Kwaito is yeah. the same thing. Economically, it's it's okay, there is some do-it-yourself in it because there are, there are black-owned labels. But, I mean, it's not really spreading. You can't really, you know, get it here, buy it here. It's not really going anywhere. It's already dying in South Africa. So I think there is a kind of ghetto tech culture which is a kind of very intellectual, bohem way. I mean, you, you, you mentioned MIA of sort of accessing this music and accessing quotation mark, ghetto culture, and kind of authentic, how do you say, making their own music authentic by doing that. But the stuff that's working is normally not the stuff that is locally happening, sure. but basically the stuff that is DJed in UK and produced in UK by the diaspora very often. Sure, but uh, that's exactly, I mean, it's exactly the connection between what it seems like you're suggesting is the more authentic stuff and um, the global dilettante. It's exactly the way in which they coexist in, uh, in an ecology which feed off each other, which perhaps feed off each other in a unilateral way. But it's to take these together to try and go beyond. I think part of what we're doing is to try and go beyond um, I think what is essentially a very old um, distinction, which I think was un is underlying what you're suggesting there between underground and mainstream or between 
peripheral and, and kind of westernized dilettante dilettantism which picks and chooses from romantically from certain locales is to understand these two processes together um, and how they operate, feed off each other, sometimes um, lubricate the uh, lubricate the channels through which some of this music can spread and artists can um, travel and get paid and so on. Thank you. Any more questions? I have the Diana. microphone. <laughs> so isn't, I mean, aside from the fact that maybe people don't understand that most of this music is being distributed on the internet because maybe you didn't feel like you have to mention that in your talk, that that's, that that's what kids are doing to get music. They don't go to record shops anymore. They go to the internet, wherever they are, maybe their local cyber cafe with 15 other friends, and that they, they don't spend their money in music shops. But then aren't we talking about that post-economic music is, is also something like post-consumer music? And then what does that mean? Because the economy is based on the consumers and the consumers stop being there. And they are still, they're just not paying anymore, but they're not acting like proper consumers. There is um, one interesting model of this post-economic music has been proposed by the French economist Jacques Attai, what he calls composition, this fourth mode of audio sociality that he calls composition. And he says, in this era of composition, um, music is no longer communication. We, the, the key thing about music in this era of composition is that you do it for yourself. So it's no longer about communication. You do it for the sake of playing it. Now, um, he actually, interestingly and quite amusingly, he goes on to call this a kind of masturbatory mode of music culture. And as he also goes on to say, it's a very individualistic um, model of post-economic music. I think what's interesting, I mean, I think this area of post-economic music is quite hazy and blurred for us. Um, so we, I think, wanted to contrast that kind of model with um, the essential, the, what, crucially, the collective mobilizations of models such as hardcore continuum, global ghetto tech, and so on. The strengths and weaknesses of these models can be, again, debated um, endlessly and are online. Um, but I think what's interesting is that contrast between that kind of individualized model of um, post-economic music and what, what kind of hints there might be towards a more collective uh, model. Um, yeah, I've got another question um, because um, you're talking about post-economic music, but uh, music, music is not just um, selling their work, it also is uh, uh, you have to get the equipment for the production of the music as well. Can you say something about that? I mean, like the music technology or the um, software or whatever that someone 
producing that and the consequences for the Are you talking about um, getting hold of equipment, i.e. part of this pirate ecology of yeah. free equipment, or are you talking about people actually producing their own, um, writing their own software, writing their own sequences, kind of uh -huh. taking apart these kind of standardized platforms? Yeah, what, what more, uh, more about what... Um, music production aspect of the post-economic music. I think the reason we, the reason we're having, uh, the reason we have a, a kind of uh, awareness about this question is because post-economic music isn't, isn't a concept that, that we find especially productive. Let's say it's a concept that raises as many questions as it opens out and illuminates uh, a way of thinking about the present. Um, and so the relation of, um, of technological kind of, uh, of practices, of the way people assemble their studios, of the way people work with sonic processes, um, it's a question which is, um, I think, somewhat inhibited by the question of post-economic music. Um, it's a question that becomes more, not less, difficult to answer. In other words, I'm not sure how helpful it is to pose the two together, especially. Um, uh, for me, the notion, of, um, the notion of piracy is works and operates because it's so scalable. So it works at the level of a, the kind of the micro-texture of a track. Uh, and it works also in your relation to your studio, and it scales all the way up to the kind of um, uh, popular, popular avant-gardes uh, that emerge from that. So there's a scalability there, and a kind of flexibility there, and a kind of fluidity uh, that, um, that the term post-economic music doesn't have. Of course, it's the, uh, the term post term post with its, with its implications of, um, of a division in temporality, uh, the, uh, the undoubtedly complex temporality of what the post is, of what comes before, what lives on after, what persists, uh, what survives, what is left behind. Um, the question of the post and the temporality of the post um, is one whose... Um, Complexity, I'm not sure. It's a question for Eckhart and Bjorn. It's a question for them to really formulate. And uh, it's a question for them to unpack for us, I think, and to really um, begin to... Uh, I think they didn't have so much space in their statement. It was a question for them to begin to unfold this, the temporality of the post-economic, um, and, and what that does to specific practices, and what that does to the kinds of... Um, creative interventions that you're talking about. Maybe I can <clears throat> say something about this from my side since I'm a part of the problem, part of the per one of the persons who created the problem to begin with. Um, the idea of post-economy was just a model of thinking for us in the very beginning when we started this. And uh, it has two sides to it for me. One is um, 
uh, something bad, which is um, you cannot make your living with music anymore. Music exists; uh, uh, it doesn't. It's not doesn't take part in the market anymore. It's of course not completely true. It's just a tendency we observed. And the other would be kind of a beautiful thing that would be the complete autonomy of music in just um, uh, being not part of economic models anymore, but having its own models that post economy. So uh, this, those were just a model of thinking. It was not really stating that there is a music that we have to call post-economic, uh, just to ask, maybe ask, uh, answer some, uh, some of the questions. Um, yeah, that's just what I wanted to add to you know, get uh, Kodu and Steve uh, away from having to explain a term they just picked up or they were confronted with from our side. Well, we, we didn't pick it up. I think what's interesting about it is that um, uh, uh, at the, the very uh, the moment, the moment in the text which um, draws on this uh, purpose, draws on this concept, there's um, there's what we might call a, an envy and an admiration. So if you remember when uh, Robert Venturi talked about learning from Las Vegas, and if you remember when Rem Kool has talked about learning from Lagos, there's a sense in which you want to learn from ghetto tech. So there's a kind of envy and a certain admiration for musics like Kuduro and Kwato. There's a sense that we, us here, can learn from Kuduro, we can learn from Kweto. In other words, there's a sense that, that these zones are in the future, a future which we've only just arrived, a future of immiseration, pauperization, precarity. There's a sense that these musics have emerged from, inhabit, dwell within, and have learnt how to, have learnt how to create from within the kind of, from within the scars of permanent immiseration. So there's a certain sense that we can learn from these musics. And so in this sense, um, uh, the question of uh, post-economic music and the, the, the geography, the geography of the post-economic, which is what we call the new geography of money, which is implied, or the new geography of poor poverty, which is kind of the same, same thing. Um, what we're interested in is the romantic turn, the romantic turn that it seems we can learn from these musics in the same way as Robert Venturi thought he could learn from Las Vegas, and Rem Kulas believed he could learn from Lagos. That's kind of what's interesting for us, the moment when that post-economic music, which you characterize as a dialectic, is, is specified and takes on geographical capacity so that certain musics and certain geographical musics are charged, are charged with a quality, uh, are charged with a quality that we can learn from. So the idea that certain zones are in the future and that we have a certain, um, uh, we, we owe them a certain humility, and, and, uh, and, and from this position of humility, envy, admiration, curiosity, respect, we can learn from them. That's fascinating, the, the, kind, of, the kind of pedagogical impulse uh, 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 inferred by the notion of post-economic music. That's, those, those are the kind of things we find interesting, and uh, those are the kind of things we want to um, um, open out some more. Another uh, a lot of questions. It's quite late. There's, Maybe you can take. There's one here. And there's one here. Okay, we'll have those two questions, and then we'll sh uh, close the forum if that's okay. Do you want to? Start? You already talked, so can I have him? <laughs> yeah, uh, you had your chance. Hi. Um, maybe maybe more a. Uh, a notion, another question. I guess the term um, post-economic is at least um, difficult to use because 
it implies that there's no economic impact on the music. And even if we talk about people downloading music and not paying for it, there's still an economic impact. I mean, people still go to concerts, people gather together to experience music, people buy equipment, people drink if they go to a concert. Um, there's a much bigger industry of all kinds uh, involved with any kind of art which creates a certain amount of um, popularity regardless how underground it is, and it was always like that. So I guess um, the term um, post-economic is misleading in this regard. And I also think even if um, you think about the simple fact of downloading, there are still people benefiting from it. You create bandwidth, and if everyone is creating downloads all the time, um, there's certainly a whole industry benefiting from that. And as a last notion, no, no underground culture in history, um, when it became interesting to a few people, stayed underground. So I think we, we and I speak as an artist, we cannot escape um, economic situations regardless of how obscure is what we're doing. Either it's, either it's so obscure that it falls down the long tail because no one buys it, but then also no one will download it for free, or it's interesting enough to be bought or downloaded, and then we are part of the economic game. That's my statement. I think the, the, the ambiguities and the questions that you, you've just raised are exactly the, 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 the questions that we had with this concept of post-economic music. Another, um, another trouble we had was it, as, a, as a, a potentially vague term was what, what was it that is being actually said? Is it post-capitalist music or post-economic generally? Is it a specific mode of economy that is being hinted towards? Um, a voice from somewhere. Yeah. Pete said post-neoliberal. Yeah, so it, I think alongside the, the, the issues you raised, we had a, a few more questions about this term post-economic, just in, in clarifying whether what, what specific economic uh, model, context, system was being referred to? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I think uh, I think according to Bjorn, that's all we have time for. We have one time for one more. Jolly good. Let's go. No, let's have a just question. just another remark. You mentioned Lagos. I mean, I would just suggest you know go there. <laughs> and see, see what you can learn from it, because in terms of the business, it's a mess. I mean, it's a couple guys, the biggest uh, whatever a record company is the same guy who owns the biggest television uh, program, and he only plays his own music, and he makes contracts that are a total mess. It's, I don't really see what you would really learn there and besides uh, how people can be exploited. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was Rem Coolhouse who who, yeah, who had that uh, But But he, 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 had this, uh, the, he, he offered this notion of that he feels that there might be something inspiring to find there. So uh, uh, not, not exactly. No. I, think, I think what we've been suggesting is that implicit in these, what we've described as these model, it's, I mean, it, I know it's a multiplicity, but we're simplifying by calling it a model of global ghetto tech just now, that implicit in that system is a sense in which its proponents are um, 
suggesting that there is something that the West can learn from the musical mobilizations that are happening there. Uh, is that your closing? Yes. Um, okay, so I'd like to close the discussion at the moment. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, we do need a break. And uh, so we have half an hour, and I guess it'll be quarter to nine when we continue with the panel discussion. Um, and I hope you find opportunity to discuss further and talk further within this weekend. Thanks, you. Thank you. Thank you.